0: Lord, we just thank you and praise you so much uh, that we can be here again. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that uh, as we read it, Lord, that it would sink deep into our hearts, Lord, that we would, uh, that we would not just understand what it means in our minds, Lord, but that uh, your spirit would apply it to our lives. Uh, Lord, that you would just take these words and that you would apply them to our lives, each and every one of us and as a congregation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're reading this morning from Psalm 33, and I believe you can stand as we read. I'm still getting used to this. I, I told Adam earlier, if I screw up, then you can laugh at me and I'll be humbled, so it all works out well in the end. Psalm 33, in the Pew Bibles, that is uh, 463, at least if this is a Pew Bible. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the water, the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. And I believe you may be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. We're continuing our series through the book of Exodus. And we are done with the burning bush. For those of you who were concerned about a fifth sermon from the burning bush. (laughs) Or maybe it's the sixth, I don't know. Yeah, so we are still in chapter four of Exodus. And um, I'd like to take this, I'm going to begin in verse 18 and go all the way through the end of the chapter. I'm going to take it in three parts. One of the stories here is, I think... One of the two or three weirdest stories in the whole Bible. So that'll be fun when we get to it. But I think what's happening here is Moses is learning some things about God. He has been commissioned to go and do something incredibly gutsy. And he has got to go to theology class first so that he can get prepared to do what it is that God has called him to do. And so God is putting him through a number of situations. God is communicating to him even directly And telling him some stuff that he needs to know if he's going to be able to take these Jewish people all the way through uh, to the promised land. So I'm going to read this in three parts. I'll begin in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. So this is right after the burning bush. And said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, in your power. That comes from a few paragraphs earlier where God gave him certain miracles. You remember uh, one of them was the staff in his hand turned into a snake. And then as it's crawling around, he grabs the tail and then it becomes a staff again. The other one was he put his hand into his chest and we brought it out. His hand had leprosy and then he put it back in and he brought it out healthy again. And then the third one. Um, was he was supposed to take water out of the Nile and pour it on the ground. And as it poured on the ground, it would turn into blood. So God gave him three different miracles that he was supposed to perform right inside of Pharaoh's court. And so God tells him again, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Notice how God takes responsibility for that right there. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh. See how that's in all caps there. Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So let's look at a few phrases here. First of all, I, I think that's so interesting that God gives miracles to Moses. Moses is responsible for bringing these miracles right into the courts of Pharaoh, the, the snake and the leprosy and the, and the Nile blood. Now, miracles in the Bible are designed to increase awe and faith among the people who see the miracles, okay? So you see some miracle, and the, the goal of this is that it ought to be very impressive, Right? And you see this miracle, and the response then is that we feel awe or, and, that, and that our faith or our confidence in God is uh, strengthened. And it's also interesting that we don't see miracles all through the Bible. Miracles tend to be clustered around the most important events. Have you ever thought about that? That miracles in the Bible tend to be clustered around the most important things that God is doing. And so we have miracles around the Exodus. We have miracles all around Christ and his birth and all through his life just uh, infused through his teaching and drawing attention to his teaching and then obviously the resurrection. And then you have the apostles and the miracles that were associated with the founding of the church. So miracles tend to be clustered and I think that's because... God uses miracles in order to sort of shine a spotlight on certain moments. It's as if God from heaven is saying, look at this man, look at the apostle Peter here and listen to what he says. Look at my son, look at Jesus of Nazareth and listen to what he has to say. Look at Moses, listen to what he has to say. So there are words that come out of these guys mouths And there are miracles surrounding these people so that people will pay attention. And the goal of all of this is that people would listen and believe in God. So miracles are designed to increase awe, increase faith, and draw attention to the most important moments in history. And that's how it should have worked for Pharaoh. Pharaoh should have seen what Moses did in his courts and said, whoa, God is awesome. That's awesome. What can I do? What do you guys need? Can I help you pack? Like, what do you need? That's, that's how Pharaoh should have responded to the miracles. And again, the miracles are generally not uh, is, isolated. They're connected to words. Okay, so we're not talking about paranormal here. We're not talking about weird stories that send shivers up and down our spine and so on. What we're talking about is miracles, Bible miracles that are designed to draw attention to words in the Bible that have come out of a missionary or an apostle or a pastor or a, or a God's mouth uh, that need to be paid attention to. So that's how Pharaoh should have responded, should have seen these miracles and been like, that's awesome. God is awesome. God rules all creation. God rules me too. So what do you guys need? Can I come? Like This, this, is, how Moses sh- or this is how Pharaoh should have responded. Pharaoh should have worshipped right there in his courts. That's how he ought to have responded, but Pharaoh rebelled against the miracles. He hardened his heart against the miracles, and so what happened is God bumped then to the next level. We're not just going to do miracles in your court. We're going to do some miracles in your whole country. How about that? Ten plagues, and eventually Pharaoh's son was killed because death is the penalty for rejecting God. Listen to how God talks about miracles. Listen to how the Bible talks about miracles. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 4. Listen to this, has God ever attempted to go, oh, I'm sorry, has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God, there is no other beside him. So this is the Bible saying, how awesome is that? Look what God did. That's awesome. And he did this so that you would know that the God of this book is true. He is the one and only God. It's The purpose of these miracles, they're designed to increase a feeling of awe in our hearts. They're they're designed to cause kind of a knee-knocking, whoa, something going on here that I need to pay attention to. And to reject those miracles is offensive to God because we see God all the way through the rest of the Bible sort of, if I can say, bragging about what he did there at the Exodus. Looking back at what happened in the Exodus, like, can you believe that? And all those signs and wonders with an outstretched arm. Does any, any other God done something like that? How awesome is that? And of course, God can say that about himself because it's true. Now, what is the Bible's greatest miracle Can you think, if you can narrow it all down to one miracle, which one was the most important miracle in human history? The resurrection, that's right, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event of human history. And it was a miracle. It was God intervening in the natural laws of creation and doing something completely amazing. And first century people weren't stupid. Sometimes we think, well, you know, my science class was more impressive than their science class. And so, you know, they probably believed in old wives tales and silly things like this. But, you know, first century people weren't dumb. They knew what death was. They might have known even better than some of us because a lot of us get weird when you cut the heads off a chicken or something like that. We prefer our meat like just wrapped and we don't ever want to know the name of that animal and so on. But these people understood what death was. They knew what a dead body was. They pulled a dead guy off the cross, and then three days later, they saw him walking around. First century people, they knew how to tell ghost stories. They knew what those were. They knew about paranormal-type stories. They understood that kind of language. That's not how the resurrection is recorded in the Gospels. It's written as a historical record of a man who died and came back to life bodily. That's how it's written. That's what they're saying happened here. And as Christians, we don't accept the resurrection of Christ on blind faith. We believe in the resurrection because the historical evidence is so compelling. It's an issue of probability. Plus, the life of Jesus Christ was surrounded and infused by other miracles. So this calls for a response of awe, a response of faith, and an awareness that at that moment in human history, God was doing something extremely important that we need to listen to and pay attention to. Well, Pharaoh did not pay attention to the miracles. He hardened his heart. He had what the Bible calls a hard heart, which means, whenever that phrase is used, a desire to act contrary to God. And it's a great metaphor, isn't it? I mean, a heart, real physical hearts actually aren't hard to... Uh, that kind of an input, but it's a wonderful uh, metaphor or illustration of what happens in the inner man or in the inner woman or the inner girl or whatever it may be, that inner part of us that that needs to be infused with God's words and God's ways and God's spirit and so on, except we harden against him and we want God to do some other things and let's not discuss this particular issue or whatever. And miracles have the effect of making us go, <gasps> which makes us then open to those words so that they can infuse our hearts. Um, Miracles create that softness. But a hard heart refuses even the very clear evidence, even the very compelling evidence of a dead man walking around, the very clear evidence that God is at work here. And the interesting thing is that God is the one who hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's very interesting it raises a lot of very uh, thorny questions, doesn't it? And you know, something similar happened with the miracles of Jesus. Same purpose behind the miracles he in John five thirty six, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, says Christ, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So these miracles were designed to affirm what it was that was coming out of Jesus' mouth. Same basic purpose here between Moses and Christ. God sent these guys to speak certain things and the miracles were designed to draw attention to those things and affirm those things, almost ratify those things. Miracles are designed to increase awe and faith and the, in, the, in the words that come out of the missionary's mouth, the, the miracles are, are kind of like saying, listen to this man. But the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day, did not believe the miracles. They hardened their hearts against the miracles. So again, Jesus says, the worst that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Jewish leaders said, that's not enough evidence. We don't believe that you're the Messiah. We don't believe that you're God. In fact, we're going to stone you. They hardened their hearts against Christ. Now, why did they harden their hearts? Why did they harden their hearts? In John chapter 12, we're told this. I'm going to read you a few verses. Listen to this. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. It's interesting, isn't it? God hardened the heart of the Jewish leaders in the days of Jesus Christ so that they would not pay attention and respond accurately and correctly to those miracles. Really similar to to, to Pharaoh. Just like with Pharaoh, God sent a man with words that needed to be believed. And God used miracles to bear witness to the words that were coming out of his mouth. And in both cases, God's people responded in faith to the miracles, and God's enemies were hardened against God. This raises all kinds of questions. I'm not really going to answer any of them, but here are the main points to remember. I have some good books on it. If you want to read 800,000 pages or something like that, I can help unravel some of the philosophy. But if you can handle a paradox, not a contradiction. If you can handle a paradox without needing to try and philosophically understand what people have said about this over the course of a couple of thousand years. Here are the basic principles. Here are the basic principles. First of all, God rules salvation. God rules salvation. John 10, the works that I do in my father's name, bear witness about me, but you do not believe because You are not among my sheep. 2 Thessalonians 2.10, Paul writes about those who are perishing, and he says, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may not believe what is false. Oh, I'm sorry. So that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Wow. So many places in Scripture we see this truth, that God rules salvation, not just ruling creation. But God rules salvation. Another thing to keep in mind is that God is glorified in all responses to miracle. God is glorified in all of these different responses. God was glorified when the Jewish leaders responded uh, uh, by praising God when Moses did these miracles in front of them and so on. And they found out that Jesus was paying attention, that God was paying attention to them. And they You know, they believed and they worshipped and so on. God was glorified there. And God was also glorified by the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Because God's response was, all right, you're not going to believe in these miracles. How about the ten plagues? And now I'm going to boast about those for a couple of thousand years. Same thing with Christ. God was glorified by being followed around with a bunch of these disciples. And the early church is beginning and people are putting their faith in him. God was also glorified in the rejection of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day because eventually the crucifixion happened. The crucifixion wouldn't have happened unless you had those Jewish leaders rejecting God. See, God gets glory no matter how people respond to miracles and to the Word. And the third thing that I would just say here, if we can keep this paradox in our mind, is that human beings are fully responsible for responding to God correctly. And that's where the paradox happened. How is it that God can be in control and human beings still be free and morally culpable for their choices? That's a very good question and there are major philosophical systems to try to unravel that. But we'll just say both of those things are true. The Bible says that both of those things are true. It's a paradox. So our response to this is to pray for lost souls because God is the one who's in charge of salvation. And that's why we pray. We pray. And we pray and we pray for lost people because God is the one who draws people to himself. And we evangelize urgently. We evangelize urgently because how are they going to repent for their sins unless somebody tells them about Jesus Christ? And we live under God humbly and with gratitude because we realize that God is in control. And this is something that Moses is learning over and over and over and over all through these first few chapters of Exodus. He's learning this amazing truth that God, that Yahweh, rules creation. He rules all creation. He rules every piece of dust and every heart in creation. And yet human beings are responsible for their moral choices, for their response to God. And so it was still right for God to punish Pharaoh for his rejection. Amazing truths here. Next thing I want to draw attention to in this passage is that God refers to Israel as his firstborn son, which is very personal. Did you notice that? I think it was in verse 22. This is uh, Exodus four twenty-two. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I love that. First of all, it's crazy personal. It's so personal. This is God. This is God. And yet he's calling these people by very, very personal familial names. But it's also, it kind of has almost a mobster flavor to it, doesn't it? Like kind of a really good mobster movie. I don't at all mean to be offensive. I mean that in the most complimentary way. But God is basically saying, look, you kidnapped my son. You give me my son, or I'm going to kill your son and take my son. So both ways I win. That is just seriously awesome. Now imagine you're the son, and you're enslaved, and you hear this line, (laughs) which is kind of what happens. Those people are standing there, and Moses and Aaron come, and they perform the miracles, and they respond in (laughs) worship. Imagine that you're the son, you're enslaved, and you hear this line. You hear your awesome father say give me my son back or I'm going to kill your son and take my son I mean that is just cool that is just awesome how does that make you feel to know that God thinks of you as a child and that he is still a great rescuer and savior yeah yeah it's it's really a great thing God is the awesome heroic rescuer of children And you are his child if you believe in the words of Jesus Christ and repent for your sins. You become his child. You may not be racially Jewish, but you are adopted into the family and just as valuable to him as any other kid. In the introduction to John's gospel, he says, To all who did receive him, Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man, but of God. It's us. That's us, the new, that's, that's you and me. We're one of the kids that God says, look, I'm going to take care of this and if anything comes against my kid, I'll kill you. That's pretty cool. You have this right of the firstborn. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he cleans you from your sins. Believe that he loves you and believe that he will raise you up on the last day. Now, why does God save us? And we get a little bit of a hint here, too, in Exodus chapter 4. Uh, he says, let my son go that he may serve me. And I think that's very important for us, especially for those who grow up in the church, who have been in the church for a very long time and just feels so culturally normal that we forget why sometimes God has saved us. We are not saved just so that we can wander around and the most interesting thing we do is get a new subwoofer in the back of our car and that's the coolest thing that happens in our lives. The The cool thing here is that we are saved for God. We are saved to serve him. He saves us so that he can pull us out of slavery to sin and serve him and worship him and respond like the dudes did at the end of the chapter. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. That's what God's after. God is still making groups of people, pulling them out and making groups that are for himself, that are designed to bring glory to him, that enjoy him, that serve him. So this is a beautiful section of scripture here that tells us a lot about God. He is still working in this world. He is still bringing people out. He is still making a people for his glory. He is still ruling creation. He is still ruling salvation. God is still awesome. He is still a heroic savior. The response that we ought to have to these miracles and to these words is to believe in him. Now let's go on to the next part of this. One of the weirdest stories in the Bible Verse 24 of Exodus 4. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Whoa. Now, he just commissioned him. I mean, this is right after Burning Bush. He goes to Jethro. Hey, can I leave? And all of a sudden, God wants to kill him. It gets weirder. Then Zipporah, which that's his wife. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. All right. Aren't you glad that I don't normally put anything on screen (laughs) at this point? I mean, that's just weird. That is a weird story. That's a weird story. And I'm mature enough to just... Button it down, and I've got a great circumcision joke. Just come to me afterward, I'll tell you. (laughs) All right, so what is this all about? God just commissioned Moses, and now all of a sudden God wants to kill Moses. And the way that God relents from killing Moses is Moses' wife cuts off the foreskin of their son and touches his sandals with it. And then God says, oh, okay, you're, you're right, okay. What is that all about? Now, circumcision is the sign of God's covenant. And you remember the Bible character that this was introduced to? Like, who was the Bible character, Genesis chapter 12, where circumcision became part of the covenantal agreement? You remember? It starts with an A. Abraham, very good, okay. Right, and so this goes way before Moses. So this was part of the deal. You want to be one of Abraham's children, you're going to be in the family, one of the descendants of Abraham, you circumcise your sons on the eighth day. It looks like Moses didn't do that, which is a bummer for this teenage son, don't you think? (laughs) I'd rather have that happen on the eighth day. The poor kid is like, whoa, (laughs) But this was the deal, and this is serious. When God says do something, you got to do it or he'll kill you because death is the penalty of rejecting God. So it might just kind of seem this was not like a footnote here. Oh, and you might want to circumcise your kids. No, no. God says you're part of the family, you circumcise your kids. That's the sign of the covenant. It's an outward sign of something that's happening internally. Romans 2.29 says, circumcision is a matter of the heart. And even Deuteronomy, Old Testament says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's Deuteronomy 10.16. Jeremiah was pleading with the wayward Israelites before the exile. And he said, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. How do you do that? How do you remove the foreskin of your hearts? And what we're after here is being sensitive to God's leadership. When God says that we need to do something, we need to do it. It's about being carefully obedient to God. It's about being totally committed to God. And this is what God is saving us for. He's saving us to be his devoted people. So the story goes on here, verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord to which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Well, I would love to see video of that. Of Moses going back into the town that he had left in shame so long ago. And figuring out how to get the the leaders together and it 's just one sentence of the Bible, but i 'd love to know more of that. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed see the people are responding correctly there 's a right and wrong way to respond to Bible miracles, and the people are here are responding correctly, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel. That he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. What an amazing moment that must have been. I mean, little did they know how scary it's going to get here in the next few chapters, and we're going to see that. This is just the beginning of a tale that hasn't even really started yet. We're kind of still in the intro. intro. This is like prep of prep of the, uh, the prophet. Um, and this story is going to get much more thrilling, but... Uh, What an amazing moment that would be for these people to realize through these miracles and through these men and the words that came out of their mouths, to realize that God had paid attention to them, that God saw their affliction and God was going to do something about it. What an amazing thing that must have been. What a worship service that must have been. Bowed their heads and worshiped. So you have a few simple miracles, few small signs, and a rekindled faith. It's a beautiful thing. The response was exactly what miracles are designed to produce. Um, All right, so for the rest of our time, what I'd like to do, I think we're probably about halfway here. What I'd like to do is consider some implications of these paragraphs. See if we can uh, summarize some of the things going on here in order to uh, learn some of the things that Moses was being taught. My argument here is that Moses was in prophet prep school, (laughs) He's in leader prep school. Uh, he's about to shoulder a few hundred thousand people, and he's got to be a good leader. But he starts off bad at the burning bush, saying, eh, can you send somebody else, and all that other kind of thing. And so he's weak, and he's needing to be strengthened, which normally is theological problem. That's a theological problem. He needs some theology. He's got to believe some stuff about God. Uh, but not just trivia. My guess is that Moses had read... His Bible, as much of it as existed, he knew things about God. He knew trivia about God, but he didn't know God. And I think that's an issue that all of us struggle with. And I think actually that is the purpose of mentoring, discipleship, even sermons. It's the purpose of what we do is we want to bring the trivia or the knowledge of God into the inner man. Paul prays for believers in Ephesus. He says in Ephesians chapter 3 that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So what we're looking for in people is not just mental assent to certain ideas about God. We're not just looking for somebody to pass a multiple choice test about what God is like or things, or dates and people and so on in the Bible. What we're looking for is somebody who deeply loves God, who hates sin, uh, who has appropriate emotions in certain scenarios, who responds to God in situations. We're looking for, for discernment in real-life situations. Not just, you know, I know the difference between Joseph, Joseph and David, but what we're looking for is somebody who can make Good decisions in real-life scenarios that may be very difficult and confusing. We're looking for consistency to this kind of living. Not just Sunday morning, I'm going to sing the song, and then later on that day, I'm, I'm doing something foolish. But we're looking for consistency among people. We want a coherent worldview. And people talk about worldviews and the popular way to train worldviews today is to take students through a history of philosophy and so on, and I realize that there's some value in that, but I think what we mean by worldview is an attitude toward life. What we mean is discernment, not the ability to define the difference between Immanuel Kant and Plato and their views on epistemology or something. I think that's interesting, but I think what you really want in a teenager and what you really want in young people and in all of us is to have an attitude toward life that's accurate, to approach life accurately. And so that will impact, I think, then the way that we train up a child in the way he should go. I think they need to hear some of those stories about history, but I think way more important than that is talking about real life and having conversations about how to make decisions in different scenarios. And I think, especially, there's a lot of value in story, uh, true stories, and And biographies and and just great book type stories and so on as we look at the characters and talk about the decisions that we're making. Because what we want in a worldview is somebody who is able to interact well with wisdom, with confidence, with, with strength, with dignity, with love, with peace and joy, confidence and all that kind of stuff in real life scenarios. Not just understand the history of philosophy and where things came off the tracks during the enlightenment and so on. So what we want here, I think there are, I think many of us need to go through a process like Moses, where we're standing there at the burning bush like, I don't know if I can do this, and responding really badly to God. And we need God to take us through a process. We need the church, we need parents, and so on, to take us through a process of helping to build our discernment so that our responses in real life scenarios are correct. Reading the book now, Remains of the Day, was made into a movie back in, I think, the 90s. I love the book because the main character Stevens is a butler, uh, uh, pre World War II, and uh, he has the he, the book is this uh, internal dialogue of Stevens as he goes through uh, a variety of is he's lo- he's looking back in later life on decisions that he had made earlier, and as the reader we can see that in his internal dialogue he has these huge areas of blindness, but he doesn't see them himself, and I think. It's. I think the reason I like that book is because it makes me wonder, what areas of blindness do I have? So I think as believers, there are a bunch of different things that we need to go through so that the truths of God sink deep into our hearts, sink into real life scenarios, the hardest ones, the worst ones, the best ones, that we're responding with wisdom in real life scenarios and that we're honest in the way that we're looking at our hearts, uh, that that we can see those areas that we'd rather not deal with and that we can bring the truth of God and be be whole spiritual people. Not just spiritual on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week. Not just spiritual in that I know trivia, but spiritual in that I actually love my enemies. Spiritual that I know how to forgive and, and that sort of thing. And so I think this is a process that Moses is going through helping to make him into uh, the leader that he needs to be. And I think Many of us need to go through something similar. So I'm setting up, like, why do we need to pay attention to Scripture like this? It's not just so that we can know the story. And one of these stories is just weird. Like, why do we even pay attention to stories like this? It's because God puts these things in the Scripture so that we can be God followers, so that we can love him with all of our heart. And I think this passage explains what it looks like to be holy, uh, spiritual, Spiritual, just down to the bones, spiritual. And I'm going to suggest four different things here. I think uh, I think to be wholly spiritual means to have a soft heart toward God's voice and God's words, a soft heart towards God's words, not like uh, Pharaoh who rejected God's words, not like the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day who rejected really clear evidence, but... A bowing their heads in worship type response. This is what we need toward God's words. All of God's words. Not just our favorite sections of scripture. But maybe even especially the more difficult sections of scripture. What does God's word say? And we need to have soft hearts toward those words. Really considering how might this apply to my life? How might this apply to this situation? Another thing that illustrates or demonstrates a connection between what we know and then down into the inner inner man we want to see that connection and another thing is to be caught up in God's mission to be caught up in God's mission remember that God told Pharaoh that he wants to bring the sons out so that he may serve me I want to bring them out to so those. This is the goal of salvation, is to serve God, to enjoy God, to glorify God. This makes a difference in what we do with our lives and what we do with our week and how we arrange our mornings as we're all getting ready. It makes a difference in how we do family. It makes a difference in how we do small groups. God does not free us from sin so that we can wander around. He frees us so that we can glorify and enjoy him in all that we do. So to be caught up in God's mission, to be caught up in God's purpose, to know that we have been saved for something. A third thing I think that illustrates the connection between knowledge and the inner man is to be careful to live under God's leadership. To be careful to live under God's leadership. I, I know that circumcision story is weird, but it reminds us that there are no exceptions. There's not an exception for Moses even. Like you make a list of the people in the Bible that might get a pass on something. Moses almost lost his life because he didn't circumcise his son. Now in the New Testament, Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. Some would say that some would say that the sign of the covenant, the new covenant, is baptism, which replaces circumcision. So the issue is not circumcision. The issue is what's going on in the heart. Do I have a circumcised heart toward God? Am I carefully sensitive to God's ways? Am I totally devoted to God carefully? If we're going to be his people, we've got to live carefully under his leadership. Bible urges us to have a circumcised heart. Not sort of devoted to God. Not kind of a Christian. Not mostly a Christian but fully his, totally his. There are horrible consequences for not being totally God's. And, you know, just because they may be delayed does not mean that God does not continue to sit in judgment over all people throughout the entire earth. Pharaoh seemed pretty safe until the last moments of the last plague. The fourth thing that I think illustrates a connection between what we know and the deep part of the inner man, we want to see that connection. It's the purpose of mentoring, the purpose of sitting in a sermon like this week after week after week is we want to strengthen that connection. We want to have a really strong connection here between what we know and who we really are deep in our bones. And I think the fourth thing that illustrates that connection is gratitude, gratitude and worship for God's salvation. So we're looking at salvation and our response is grateful worship. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Grateful worship for God's salvation. That's how I should have worded that. Grateful worship for God's salvation. Not just, we think worship and we think, oh, that means singing songs on Sunday morning, right? No, not really. I mean, that's part of worship. That's a kind of worship. But even then, what we want in that corporate together singing songs worship, what we want is a heart, not just lips that are allowing the stuff to come out, not just nice harmony, but what we want is a heart that is, a, that is thinking about salvation and God's attributes and responding with gratitude and with like this, I got to sing, I got to sing because I feel like praising God because of how great he is and because of his grace. So it's, a, it's, a, it's something that comes from the bones. That's what worship is. Not just, let's, can't we just sing this song because that's my favorite or whatever. What we want is a heart that, that is just bubbling up with gratif- gratitude, grateful worship. Just like the Jews when they heard that God had seen their affliction there in Exodus chapter 4. They bowed their heads in worship. That's what we want. That was an outer demonstration of something that was going on in their hearts. And different churches, you know, different ways. You'll have little bars in the pews where you can kneel down and so on. And, you know, we stand and we sit and we do all these things with our bodies because we are, we are you know, body people. We're not just spirits, and so we use our bodies. But sometimes uh, sometimes, because as evangelicals we're thinking so much about the doctrine, we forget about we need to be fully worshiping people, so that from our bones, you've got this gratitude coming out that, that sounds like music. That's what we're looking for. And we're going to do this in just a few minutes together. We're going to sing some songs. And they're designed as a response to the preaching of God's word. So if the preaching of God's word is this message that God is, you are a child of God and God is doing something in your life, teaching you about himself and exposing you and telling you about these miracles that are designed to cause a response of awe, so that you will glorify him. That's, you know, that's, if that's what the emphasis of the sermon is, then the response to that in our songs ought to be that. <laughs> it ought to be worship coming out of our mouths. Will our words flow from a heart that really understands our peril that God has saved us from? And how good it is to be children of the ultimate awesome hero. Now, I've just given you a whole bunch of stuff that you ought to do. Like, you know, you ought to have a soft heart toward God. You ought to be caught up in mission. You ought to be careful to live under God's leadership. You ought to give grateful worship to God for his salvation. So I've just piled a whole bunch of do's on you. And um, so I'd like to close by suggesting some things that help me to do these things. And uh, some of these may or may not float your boat. This is what works for me, and in 20 years, I'll have something more interesting to say about this. Um, You know, Moses didn't know God very well at this point in the the story. He just didn't know God very well, so God is teaching him about himself. Moses is learning. God is teaching, and these situations were like an advanced class for Moses that were teaching him about God's rule and the right response to God and boosting Moses' confidence in God. And giving Moses awe and faith. And, you know, there's a big difference from the beginning of chapter 4 to the end of chapter 4. Beginning of chapter 4, Moses is like, I don't know if I can do this. Can you send somebody else? End of chapter 4, he's worshiping with a group of Jewish people in Egypt, getting ready to go talk to Pharaoh. So a lot happens there in that chapter. And these are valuable lessons for Moses as he is about to take these people out into the desert and be responsible for them. And we have got to learn these same kind of things. We've got to live as people that are dedicated to God. Remember Moses himself in Deuteronomy 6, right before they went in, he's preaching his last sermon, the book of Deuteronomy. He's got people standing on the mountainside, and he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's a great leader, and his goal as a leader is to press the words into hearts. So here are a few things that help me to make this connection between things I know about God but tend to forget in real-life scenarios. These are things that tend to help me make this connection between knowledge and bones, okay? And one of those things is specific scriptures that speak to my heart, specific ones specific scriptures that speak to my heart. I know some of my areas of weakness because I live in community and you people like to tell me what those things are. And that's good. That's good. That's a good thing. That's what family's for. I have recently learned that one of my weaknesses is sullenness. I feel sorry for myself in certain situations when I don't feel respected, and so I get sullen. And I'm very grateful to have been able to label this problem with a word so that I can pray that God will help me to not be sullen in a scenario where I might be. (laughs) Now, if I know that that's an area of weakness, how am I going to pound that thing? And I'm just going to suggest that there is nothing on earth more powerful than this. Nothing. Nothing. So if I know that sullenness is a problem, what I need to do is I need to find specific scriptures that pound sullenness. And in scenarios where I'm not sullen, I read those scriptures. I've got an app on my phone. It's the ESV Study Bible. It's expensive, but it's worth it. I love that app, and I put it right on the main page, so it's one of the first things that I see. And, I've got, and it allows you to have favorites. So you see a scripture and you like that one. So you can click on it and make it a favorite. So I've got a list of favorites that pound my problems, pound my weaknesses. So I've got a couple of scriptures in there that pound sullenness. And what I, tr- and what I try to do is when I feel the sullenness coming on, because I know what that emotion is like, and it starts to have that flooding feeling where I, I'm not sure what to do and so on, as I think of those scriptures. And I would just urge you to do something like that. One of the scriptures for me Romans fifteen thirteen May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That I can pound my little sullen feel sorry for myself. I can pound myself in those scenarios. Um, it's not you know positive thinking or positive self talk or whatever. It's Bible that I pound my sin sick hard heart with, so that I can. Act in a way that is loving in scenarios. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So those are verses that are helpful to me. And it's because God's word has power. Jeremiah 23, 29, I think we have it on the wall out there. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Revelation 1.16, this is talking about Jesus, and it says, In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face, face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I love that. Is, From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. It's just the words of Christ <laughs> have victory over his enemies. So bring that word into your heart, specific scriptures that speak to the heart. Another thing is wise community. Wise community this is why it's so important to find a good church and a good spouse if God calls you to marriage. Proverbs 13:20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That's a good one for the fridge. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. You've got to surround yourself, not totally. You don't want to isolate yourself from community because our whole mission is to bring lost people in here to get dunked in there and then discipled by one of us. And so the whole point is to be connected to the world. I'm not saying that you don't have foolish friends. You should have foolish friends. We want foolish people to come to Cornerstone so that they can hear the word of God, they can hear the gospel and respond in repentance and faith. So we don't really want a church full of wise people. We do want wise people here, but we want fools here too. So you want fools in your life. But if you are mostly surrounded by fools, then that's foolish. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will say, I could have written the book of Proverbs. Okay, do you understand what I mean, right? You got to have some wise people in your life. If most of your friends are foolish, you got to find someone in this room that is like, wiser than you and say, can we hang out? Can I come over? Wise community, including spouses. There, there, won't. If you end up getting married, there will be no one more important to your spiritual health. It's got to be someone who can speak into your bones. It's got to be somebody who can speak into these massive areas of remains of the day blindness that all of us have. That we look back on later in life and realize that, how did, how did I not see? Why didn't anybody, well, we've got to have people who can gently and lovingly draw attention. Well, not even lovingly. Sometimes you find out about things like sullenness through not fun uh, means. Um, but if we're surrounded by wise people, then we can work that out together, and it's a gracious process. Wise community. You know, those of you who aren't married and want to be, find somebody wise. Find somebody who loves God. Find somebody who has some self-awareness. Run them through some paces, right? Run Run them through some paces, like figure out a group of you that can go on vacation together and then see if you can figure out how to skip a meal or sleep outside or something like this. See what they're like when they're... Uh, not getting cravings met see what pops out of the mouth see what pops out of the heart Is this somebody that you want to wake up next to every day for the rest of your life maybe but running through some paces some tests okay another thing that helps me i'll run through this quickly i feel like i'm going way over oh my goodness i'm going way over time There's only one service, that's right. We could go till one. <laughs> no, I, you know what, I'll do these other ones later. I'll keep it, it'll be great for later. I just realized I've been up here for a long time blabbing, so amen, that's right. <laughs> Let me close in prayer, okay? God in heaven, we thank you for this good word from Exodus. Thank you for what you did in Moses' life, taking just a disaster coward And making him one of the great men that we can learn from. And I pray that you would do that in our lives too. We all have areas of fear and escapism and cravings that are weird and things. And God, I pray that you would just help us. Help us. Teach us about yourself. And make us deep believers in the inner man. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.